Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. All right, so this is another week where it is very possible that I will shatter another paradigm. Um, that's what we do on the show now, apparently, is we shatter people's paradigms and make them rethink their entire existence. This week will be no different. Uh, you know, I'm going to start by getting a little philosophical. What are we, if not a collection of our memories? You know, without getting too complicated... But basically, we exist at a specific point in time, and everything that happened before that point in time that we lived through, we've recorded inside of our brains as memories. You know, we've got um, all this, the, the, all of our five senses are recorded, what we saw, what we heard, what we smelled, the way things felt, uh, the way things tasted, all of that gets recorded in our brains, and we can kind of bring it up later, and that's how we know that we've done a certain event. Now, what if I told you? That the things you believe to have happened, the things that you believe existed in your past, didn't really exist at all, uh, or they are not how you remember them. That is very true. That that is what we are going to talk about today with with renowned memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. We're going to talk about how every time you record a new memory, it gets adjusted, both when an event happens. Then once it's in your brain, while it's sitting around in your brain, it can be altered. And then every time you recollect that memory, it can be altered. Uh, think of it kind of like a new toy. You know, I liked action figures growing up. So, you know, you get a brand new action figure for Christmas. You rip open the, the, the blister packet, I believe they call it. You pop out the new action figure and he's brand new. Mint condition, collectors, collectors call it. That's a new memory. Well, as you play with it, as you as you adjust it, as it gets banged around in your toy box or whatever, ch paint starts chipping off. Maybe uh, the plastic gets a little dirty, uh, you know. And after a long period of time, that action figure does not look like the original action figure that you bought. And so, this is kind of how our memory works. Uh, it's it's very strange. So, those are some of the literally mind-altering concepts we're going to get into today with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Dr. Loftus, thank you for being on the show today. I got to tell you, I, I started looking into your work. I kind of stumbled into it trying to analyze memory for, for another project. And I realized that I've, I've been living under a rock for the past 20, 30 years as you've redefined the genre of, of memory and especially eyewitness testimony and how our brain is so malleable. Memories are not at all what we think they are. And I think that uh, it's kind of terrified me a little bit. I've always considered myself to be a guy who's got a great memory and now I'm not so sure. Um, and I have trouble living with that. How do you live with that information? I, I live with it just fine. I, 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 yeah, I know how easy it is for memory to get distorted. I mean, I've spent the last you know, four decades doing experiments in which we distort people's memories or plant entirely false memories. I know right. it's kind of a scary thing. Yeah. But, but, you know, the bottom line here is that an appreciation of 
how malleable memory is means that when somebody is telling you a story and you know it's full of holes or it's mm. it's mistaken, it's distorted, you don't have to immediately assume that the person is deliberately lying. They could honestly believe in what they're saying and their memory could just be distorted by some process, by suggestion, imagination, or something other than an authentic experience. And that's a, that's a nicer way to feel about people. Sure. No, it sure is. You, you have this great quote, uh, I believe it's from this. You, you have a, there's a great article in Psychology Today in 1996. Two great things came out of it. Well, several great things. Two things I'm going to mention. Number one, here's a quote from you, I believe. Let's see if I'm misquoting you. Eyewitnesses who point their finger at, at innocent defendants are not liars, for they genuinely believe in the truth of their testimony. That's the frightening part. The truly horrifying idea that what we think we know, what we believe in all of our hearts, is not necessarily the truth. That is terrifying. That is horrifying. Um, how do you kind of rectify that uh, just as human beings? Because that essentially is a huge paradigm shift from, I think, the way people have always thought that their memory works. Um, you know, that quote says quite a lot. Well, it, it is a shift to be, because lots of lay people believe that, that memory works more like a recording device. You just record the event, you play it back later, that's memory. Uh, but it doesn't work like that. It, it's it's uh, flexible, it's changeable, uh, it's easy to distort. I, I once uh, likened it uh, to a Wikipedia page where mm -hmm. you can you can go in there and edit it, but, right. but so can other people. Right. And, and I think <laughs> just like we accept the idea that our vision is not necessarily perfect and we figure out some ways to correct it so we yeah. have better vision, so if you ha have an appreciation for uh, the glitches in memory, maybe there's some things you can do about it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny because the last episode I did, uh, one of the things, it's about, you know, design flaws of the human body, and the eye is one of them, and how the eye, we've actually evolved an eye that's backwards, and so it's essentially like, you know, one of the analogies was talking into a microphone from the bottom instead of the top, like if you talk loud enough, you can hear it, like if the light's bright enough, you can see it. And that's more of like a functional problem, you know, like a design problem. But with memory, you know, I guess with, 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 like with vision, there's not really much you can do. The input's always going to be the same. And we're going to kind of interpret it the same way unless we have color blindness or we can't see if there, our lenses are out of whack and we need glasses or something like that. So the input coming in is always the same and it will always be recorded the same. Um, but memory is this thing where you can literally change everything about it. Like, you know, I think part of the process that you outlined, there's three stages. There's the acquisition stage where you bring in stuff. Then there's the retention stage where it kind of hangs out in your brain. And then there's the recall. And at every point along that chain, you can alter things. Um, so, and, and so what I'm saying is that it's, it's a little more scary because you can kind of adjust the way we see things, but you can totally adjust how we remember things. And, and I think that, that that's really big. I think, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sound hyperbolic in any way, but just that rationalization, that realization that we can alter memory and implant false memories. I mean, that's scary for people living in the world, much less like eyewitness testimony where a man's life is on the line. This is big stuff, Dr. Loftus. You're so calm about it. It's amazing. Well, it, it, You've such a poise about you. That's incredible. It, it's, it is big. I, actually, you know, we probably have no idea how many mistakes we make on a daily basis because, it, it, and if I tell you I had, you know, 
a bagel this morning for breakfast? Well, if I tell you, like last night, I had shrimp instead of chicken. I, uh-huh. because I'm, I'm, I'm confused or I misremember. You don't know. You accept what I say. It's a mistake I made, but I don't get caught, and it really doesn't matter very much. Right. But when, when someone's liberty is at stake, uh, then very precise um, memory matters. It matters who the person was who committed the robbery. It matters what was the color of the getaway car. It, it, it matters whether the car went through a red light or a green light. All these even very little things can matter a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think if I can you know, have one lesson for people, it's that uh, you to really know whether you're dealing with an authentic memory or one that's a product of some other process, you need some independent corroboration. Right, and I think you know an interesting point about that is when we walk through the world, we're recording everything in our brain, right? So we're, we're taking it in, we're retaining it, we're recalling it later. But the only way we can describe life around us and tell things that happen if we're not having, if we don't have a video camera with us everywhere we go is our recollection of it. Um, and, you know, so with some of the things you're talking about, you would need security camera footage in order to, to corroborate evidence. But, like, how, how would one really decipher the difference between what they think they remember and what actually happened? Or even the difference between that and, and a memory that, didn't, that n- never existed at all? Like, how, how, do, how would I know that? How do you independently corroborate that? Well, with independent corroboration, what, what usually people mean when they ask for that is, you know, were there some videos or that would have to be undoctored videos? Sure. Uh, or is there some contemporaneous uh, recording or telling of it at the time that could be used to either confirm the memory or, or disconfirm it? Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't usually have that. So uh, it... It's difficult, and then you have to ask, well, uh, how much evidence do you need then to um, put people in prison and throw away the key? Like, what is reasonable doubt? Like, where does that, like, doesn't that expand a little bit with what you've kind of, like, uncovered? Well, in a way, I think these questions about memory do raise some doubts, particularly when they're very, very old experiences, very Mm. delayed memories. And particularly when there's a whole lot of suggestion in the environment that could have been responsible for creating something that's distorted or even wholly false. Right. Um, so before we, I feel like we, I jumped into the deep end. We started swimming. Uh, I want to give people a taste of what you do because we're going to come back to that. But how did you, how did this kind of become like your thing? Like you're, this is, you've done incredible work in this. How did you get into the idea of memory and false memories? Where did this come from? Uh, it came, well, first of all, when I was in graduate school, uh, I worked with a professor on some memory problems, but very theoretical work on memory. Uh, not the kind of memory I would ultimately study after I finished my PhD. Uh, with that professor, we were studying something called semantic memory, which is your memory for words and concepts, your knowledge of the world, your knowledge that an apple is a kind of fruit or that Sacramento is the capital of California, that kind of, of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I studied that for a few years, but once I was out of graduate school, I thought, I really, really want to 
I really want to study something that has more practical relevance, something that um, you know more than just you know ten other psychologists would would care about and want to right. know about. Yeah. What's that going to be? I had some experience with the study of memory, and I've always had a kind of interest in legal cases. So I thought, well, how about the memory of witnesses to accidents, crimes, and other legally relevant events? And then I began to design some studies to, to look at that. I would show people simulated accidents or simulated crimes and uh, test their memory. Uh, and I began to see how I could distort memory by asking leading questions, by exposing people to somebody else's version that maybe had some errors in it. These were just a few of the ways that I could contaminate the mm. memories of my experimental subjects. And so I wrote articles about this. I uh, volunteered to work for free on some court cases so I could see witnesses in actual court cases where precise memory does matter. I wrote about those court cases and about the, the budding science. Uh, and, and that's what led to just more studies, wanting to learn more about this phenomenon, and more requests to apply it to actual legal cases. I think that that, because you know, it's funny, because there's kind of like this whole belief, in, especially in eyewitness testimony, there's kind of like before the work you did in the late 70s with your book, Eyewitness, and then like after, because before that, people really believed what they saw. And if you had an eyewitness in a crime, the person was probably getting convicted. Um, and I think when you started raising doubts about that, that kind of changed everything, which is fascinating. Um, if I may, um, because I want to go, I want to go back a little further. So I apologize if I'm getting into any sensitive territory here, but this is the kind of stuff that's fascinating to me. And I think one of the arguments I've made in, in several podcasts is this idea that between a certain age, things that happen to someone in a certain age group kind of go with them for the rest of their lives. They become fascinated with it. And, you know, you've written about this in your book and, and in other interviews, but you had a traumatic experience when you were 14 um, involving your mother and, and drowning. And you had false memories kind of implanted inside of your head that you then later realized were not true, which if you don't mind kind of going into this a little bit, but and was there any connection between that and, and, and what you're doing now? I, I don't think think so when I when you if I tell you the chronology of it all yes it, it is true when I was 14 my mother uh, drowned in a swimming pool on my on my uncle's uh, property uh, and and that was the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life um, but uh, now long ago uh, but the false memory part didn't happen until much much later after I was already studying uh, memory distortion and false memories. It was much, much later when my uncle, we were celebrating a 90th birthday party for, for my uncle, and at this party, a relative uh, started to talk about my mother, who had passed away a long, long time before, and said, well, you know, you were the one who found your mother's body. And I said, no, I, I didn't. Her, her sister, my aunt, found the body. Oh, no, you were the one who found it. And so he was so convincing that I, I, I started thinking about that, and I started to 
almost visualize it and almost imagine that maybe I had, I could kind of see her there. And then I started confabulating other things that started to make sense. You know, maybe that's why when the firemen came, they gave me oxygen because I was so upset. I, and I'm, I'm thinking about this. And then a week later, that relative called and said, I, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. It wasn't you who found the body. It was my mother's sister, my aunt. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I just got put through the creation of a, of a false memory. I know exactly what it feels like now. And I was so fascinated with having this experience that I had been studying in other people, uh, having it done to me, even accidentally, uh, that I was interviewed. In fact, it was a, a journalist for the Chronicle of Higher Education was interviewing me about my work, and I said, well, I just had the most amazing experience. Hmm. I told that journalist the story over lunch, and he put that in the article, and that's how that story ended up pretty much in the public domain. Wow. I mean, it's, and I don't bring it up to, to be insensitive in any way. I just, I find it to be completely, I mean, that's like remarkable that, I mean, because when you think about things that happen when someone's young and how much that affects you and something so powerful, you know, the, there's this thing called light bulb memories, you know, where, where something is so intense that you remember everything about it. Flashbulb. Flashbulb. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Flashbulb. Right. Yes. Well, you, you can make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it as a, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Busted. If anyone's going to bust me on that, it's going to be you. Um, but you had the, you know, people have these memories where they remember just extraordinary details of everything. And with something like that, to be able to have that distorted, I mean, that's kind of crazy, you know? I mean, like, that that's, that's it's remarkable that, and, and it happens to the memory expert. You know, if, if it can happen under those circumstances with you, that anything, I feel like anything can happen anywhere. And there, that's, there's something, like, unsettling about that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, It is, and I'm not going to be able to make you feel any better about this. Yeah. This is just the way it is. Right. No, it's true. Um, so, you know, let's let's get into some of the uh, some of the stuff that you've done. And I do want to say one other one other fun uh, fun in that article in the Psychology Today. You mentioned in 1996 that you have 25 years of good work left. So, uh, what do you plan on doing with your last 18 months of that? Oh, <laughs> well, uh, something big, all, I hope. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I my uh, contract here at uh, UCI, <laughs> just, I got another five years at least. Okay, okay. I've got a first year grad student. Okay. I've got to get through her okay. whole process. So you're not going to mail it in, um, you know, come you know December of next year? No. no. Okay. No. All right. That's what I was worried about. No. Okay. Um, so do you have any plans of stuff that you're going to do into the future? Uh, well, I'm I'm working on some things now. Yeah. But, um, in a way, this this is jumping into the deep end before we even get into okay, the shallow all right. end. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. What what's been done already? Um, all right. Let's break into the shallow end. Uh, okay. So, uh, you know, eyewitness testimony. You know, I think this is where you've made some, you know, remark. I mean, this and false memories. Those are the two things where you've made some remarkable strides. And I want to talk about two different things here, if we could. If we can get into the pop culture, I think that kind of gives people kind of a touchstone for some things. Uh, so I just watched 12 Angry Men, which is really interesting. So quickly, it's about, um, it's, a, it's about a murder case, and it's about the jury that goes in and decides whether this boy is guilty of murder. And what I find interesting about this story is this, uh, we're also going to use My Cousin Vinny, which is another one of my favorite movies. Uh, have you seen both of these movies? 
Well, I, 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 I know, I vaguely know the plot of Twelve Angry Men because okay. it's such a famous, uh, you know, jury sure. uh, situation. Yeah. My cousin Vinny doesn't he end up uh, doing some great job as a lawyer? Even That's though exactly he has right. No experience. That's whatever. exactly right. Okay. Well, he, so um, what's lucky? The good thing about this is you don't remember any of the stuff that I'm going to talk about. Um, but I think you're going to enjoy these these comparisons. So. These are all fantasy, but I think they illustrate all the points that you've kind of cre that you've kind of solidified with hard evidence and and research. So in Twelve Angry Men, there's a couple of so the whole case hangs on two eyewitness testimonies. The first being a woman sees uh, the murder happen. Um, so she's actually across. She's the next like apartment over, and she sees it uh, actually happen. And there's also a guy downstairs who hears it and then sees the guy running from the apartment. That's basically what we're talking about. But what's interesting is this woman makes an ID while an L train is passing by. So she sees it through the window of, of two cars. And we also learn later on that she has glasses. And what's interesting about this is, is the whole group and, and she during her testimony is convinced of the amount of time she had to recognize this person's face and did not consider any of the obstacles that were in her way, which I feel like this happens a lot. And in that movie, they are convinced because she's an eyewitness, but none of what she says can possibly be accurate, correct? Well, I, I mean, I'm not sure I know the details of it to know that it can't be accurate. But, sure. But what I do know about eyewitnesses is if they express their memory with a lot of confidence and mm -hmm. detail, and even some emotion, then it's it's going to be compelling to to a, a jury. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that she expressed it that way, and that's why it was so compelling to almost all of the jurors in Twelve Angry Men. Well, and also one of the key things, um, both for, for both of these examples, um, and you're not going to send anyone to the electric chair. These are both, these are fiction films, so don't worry. This is not going to go and be submitted as evidence. Um, but one of the other things is that she says she sees this person, and they make it obvious that she couldn't see them. But it, it, the argument is that she sees who she, she believes it to be that person because that's the apartment and everything like that. So she is kind of in her mind assumed and implied based on the location that it is that person, even though she didn't actually see that person. And then given time, she then comes to believe that it is in fact, you know, like, oh, that may have been her, him. And this, you talk about this in, in police lineups as well, where someone starts out by saying, I think that might be them or this person's the closest. And then four weeks later at the jury in the courtroom, it's he did it, I have no doubt. Um, and I think that that's, that's really interesting. How does a person go from being uncertain to being 100% certain in a matter of weeks? Well, one way they do that is they're given some new information. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in, in, a, in one case that I worked on where a rape victim, her initial identification of the supposed rapist was very tentative. This one looks the closest. By the time she testified in trial, uh, she sees him in the courtroom and she's absolutely positive. Uh, he was innocent, but how, how does it go from uncertain to absolutely positive? Uh, in that case, I believe that this victim, genuine victim, was given some misleading information and saw the accused person uh, numerous times and that became her memory. 
And so that happens pretty often, and that's pretty easy to do. It is. That's, that's how post-event suggestion can contaminate or even create whole memories. But you don't even need external suggestion hmm. because our own inferences, when we draw inferences about what might have happened or probably happened, those inferences that can then solidify and start to feel to the person as if they're actual memories. Mm -hmm. And even a person's prejudice can also play a part in that as well. Um, you know, you, you, you did this interesting study where um, you talk about how people... Um, even the racial differences and how people of one race have a, diff a more difficult time positively identifying people of another race, which is, I think it's like right around 15% across the board. Like it doesn't really matter which race is identifying a another one, correct? Well, I mean, what you're talking about now is a phenomenon called cross-racial identification. Right. And it doesn't have much at all to do with feelings of prejudice about hmm. members of a different race. The basic phenomenon is we, we make more mistakes when we try to identify a stranger of a different race mm -hmm. than our own race. Um, and this happens when whites are trying to identify blacks, blacks trying to identify whites, whites and Asians, all kinds of cross-racial or cross-ethnic groups have shown this cross-race uh, bias. Hmm. It happens even with people who don't, particularly have feelings of prejudice towards hmm. members of this other race and you can even see it in six-year-olds hmm. so um, it, it's a phenomenon that we need to worry about and it's very common in yeah. known cases of wrongful conviction to see these cross-race identification mistakes i think it was like amazing to me just how many and how many different ways we can kind of get tripped up you know where we think we know something and we kind of don't so this is another one um another thing that was kind of interesting is time distortion that that people have where they believe something lasts for 20 seconds and it was two seconds right. and so so in 12 angry men there's there's a, an old man downstairs and he's got um kind of a he's has a hard time walking and so there's, you know, there's a, there's a sound, then he says 10 seconds later he gets to the front door. And they realize that going as fast as he could go, he couldn't possibly do it. It takes closer to a minute. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's lying. He may believe it was 15 seconds. In actuality, it's not physically possible to move that distance in 15 seconds. But I think that happens to everyone all the time. And it's extraordinarily, you know, it's extraordinarily important when it comes to criminal cases. Well, I, I don't know about that particular example, but a more common finding is people overestimate hmm. how long something took. Hmm. Uh, so, for example, we've shown uh, people a 30-second video of a bank robbery, and people will tell us uh, that it sometimes that it lasted for three minutes or four minutes or five minutes, much longer than it actually did. Hmm. Um, why is that important? Because if an eyewitness is telling you I, lo I, I looked at that thing, you know, and I looked at his face for three minutes, but it was really only 30 seconds. Well, that's, that's a much shorter exposure time. Mm -hmm. And so you do need to know what is the actual time. I've even worked on cases where, um, say there's some emergency, a, a horrible accident or injury. Uh, how long did it take for 911, you know, to respond to it? And people will, you know, say it was... 20 minutes when it was actually seven minutes um, right that stretching out particularly when it's a highly stressful event is the more common thing that you see rather than underestimating 
Right. You know, it's funny because Einstein had this um, interesting quote when he's talking about relativity. And so he says that, you know, if, if a young guy is talking to a cute girl, a minute feels like five seconds. And if he has his hand on a hot plate, um, you know, one minute feels like an hour. And so, you know, there's kind of this, you know, this things we like to do, obviously, time goes very short, it is very short. And the few things we, we don't want to do feels longer. And I know that's not exactly what you're saying, but this whole idea of time being relevant, depending on like how it how it records in our mind is really interesting. And it's not just, you know, it's not just exclusive to stressful situations such as a robbery or a murder or a rape or whatever. Um, in our everyday lives, we kind of can feel that way, which is kind of interesting. Uh, one of the other cool things, and this is a great experiment that you did, and it was illustrated in this movie as well, is they talk about how... Um, you know, with the guy who's walking, ran versus like he went to the door or he ran to the door, right? So if you're in if you're in a courtroom and you hear someone say, I ran to the door, you're going to immediately think it's faster than someone who went to the door, walked to the door. And you you did this great experiment where you showed people an accident scene and then you said, did these cars hit each other? Or you said, you know, these cars hit each other, how fast were they going? These cars smashed into each other, how fast were they going? Uh, incredible results on that. Right, and then the actual wording in the question was something like, how fast were the cars uh, going when they smashed mm. into each other? Right. Or how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? And we did find that people gave higher estimates of speed if you use the verb smashed than uh, if you said hit. But So that's an example of how just changing a word or two in the question can affect mm -hmm. the answer somebody gives you right. and could make somebody be speeding versus not speeding. Right. But, but I think what was more profound in that study is when we brought people back a week later and asked them a completely different set of questions, by the way, did you see any broken glass? Mm. People were much more likely to tell us they saw non-existent broken glass if we had used the word smashed That's earlier. Crazy. So, so that shows you that these leading questions are not just affecting the immediate answer, they're having a long-range effect, and they're, they're probably affecting the reconstruction of the event by the eyewitness. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy how that can kind of happen, just the words people use. I mean, it, does it ever make you wonder, like, how when, when police are questioning someone, um, the words that they're using, you know, like even good cop, bad cop kind of kind of things, the, the techniques that police use to get answers out of someone. Um, do you think that should be uh, looked at or adjusted in any way? I mean, because it kind of goes into what you're saying, right? Well, I, I definitely think that we need to pay attention to how investigators, police and others are doing the investigations and are extracting information from somebody's memory mm -hmm. because what they sometimes do and 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 I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say they're doing it inadvertently is they're conveying information they're tampering with the evidence even if uh, they're not fully aware of it mm -hmm. they've got a hypothesis about what happened and they can communicate that by the words they use and the way they ask questions and and how they interact with people uh, and so they're 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 tampering with the crime scene. Right. Now, let me ask you about a couple of high-profile cases, just because they're in the news, people like them, uh, and maybe you've seen them. Have you seen Making a Murderer or the Adnan Syed case? Have you looked into any of this stuff? Well, I, I'm not in my car enough to uh, to listen to these um, 
podcast, but yeah. remind me. Um, so Adnan Saeed, is a, it's, okay. a, it's a murder story about um, a, a woman was murdered and her boyfriend, her ex, your ex-boyfriend at the time was put in jail for it. Um, the reason why I'm asking about that one is because it took place in uh, late 90s. I think it was like 98, 99. And what's interesting about it is so many, so much is coming out now and you may get it. There's talk about him getting a new trial. There's one person in particular, this girl named Asia McLean, who remembers seeing him on a particular day. And that particular testimony was crucial to the timeline that would essentially give him an alibi where he couldn't have murdered this person. And I guess my question about that specific case is, how reliable is a memory like that? Or how reliable are these memories in this testimony from cases that took place 20, 25 years ago? Well, I mean, we know that memory fades over time 20 years is an awfully long time you don't need a phd to know that uh, mm. it, that you know we're worse after 20 years than after 20 minutes sure but what, what's <laughs> a little less a matter of common sense is as the memory's fading it's becoming more and more vulnerable to contamination mm. so it's even easier to contaminate and distort and change an older memory than a mm. really recent one um alibi memories can be mistaken Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we've recently uh, studied a situation where, well, you can picture this, the police contact a potential suspect and say, where were you two weeks ago Tuesday? And the person gives an answer and it ends up being wrong mm -hmm. because they're, they're just mistaken. They said they were at the gym, but they were really not at the gym that day. It was another day. And in some recent work with my collaborators, we've shown that when you ask people, where were you two weeks ago, Tuesday, write it down right now, and now go out and check, many, many people go and check and get evidence and find out they're completely wrong. <laughs> uh, and yet it gets used right. against defendants that right. when they, when, you know, they think it's, you know, they're cover, covering something up when they make this mistake. Right. Well, I mean, it's funny because, um, you know, when you think about how a trial works, it's people giving testimony. They're, they're recalling and they're, they're saying things they believe, and that is used as evidence against someone or for someone. And there's never really any objective, I mean, as, unless you have video camera footage or audio recordings, but there's, there's very rarely is there a case where it's all objective. There's some subject, there, there's subjectivity in what people are saying, what they're remembering. And that's the basis of our criminal court system. Um, that's really difficult to change, especially on a, on a wide scale. Um, you know, besides, you know, putting cameras on every doorstop and in everyone's bedpost, like how, how can people, how can we make this process better? Well, that's what, um, that's what psychologists, along with um, lawyers and other members of the legal profession and others have been trying to figure out. And I mean, we're, we're, we're stuck with memory and we're, we're going right. to need people's <laughs> memories and it's going to come into court cases. But there, there are lots of things that, you, that we can do to minimize the chances of a mistake. And so I'll, I'll just give you a few, a few of them. So if you picture a, an eyewitness who maybe has seen an armed robbery and then goes to a lineup and tries to identify who committed that robbery, um, well, what should the test look like? How many people should be standing there in the lineup? What instructions should be given to the witness? Who should conduct that lineup? 
Well, we have lots of experimental evidence that suggests some best practices hmm. that, that uh, you want an instruction that says to the witness, you know, the perpetrator may or may not be here. It's just as important to exonerate the innocent as to find the guilty party. You want to take the pressure off people to pick someone, anyone, because hmm. they want to see the crime solved. Um, that's one piece of advice. Give that instruction. Another piece of advice is who's conducting the lineup? Um, ideally, you want somebody conducting that lineup who doesn't know who the suspect is. Mm -hmm. that, and this is called a double-blind lineup that you, the, the, the witness and, and the investigator do not know who the suspect is. The reason you need that is because then the investigator cannot inadvertently cue the person and cannot give them feedback. Good job, you picked the right guy, which can artificially inflate their confidence level and, right. and create havoc later down the road. So those are just a couple of examples of things uh, that can be done. In, the, in, in a trial, um, even the, the prestigious National Academy of Sciences has suggested, let's educate jurors about memory. Let's either do it through expert testimony or through jury instructions that a judge gives. Let's correct some of the misconceptions they have about memory and then have them decide this particular case. So that's another example of something you could do at trial. These are, you know, each one maybe has a little bit of a beneficial effect, but collectively could have a big effect in reducing uh, wrongful convictions based on mistaken memory. It feels like you almost have to sequester the, the victims in a way. Like you have to really keep them away from everyone and everything and just get whatever they genuinely feel in that moment, as pure as the moment as you can get from right after the crime. Uh, right, or, or at the, sometimes the lineup is sure, after you're right. the weeks or, or I mean, sometimes even months. And, right. and in these cold cases, it can even be a lot longer. But, right. Um, uh, so it's hard to really sequester them, but, right. but at least you you can try to discover what what kinds of influences they've been subjected to. Right. You know, and I think you know, kind of, you know, and I keep saying disturbing, but one of the things I think that bothers me the most about this phenomenon is kind of like I love paranormal stuff, right? Like I love the idea of UFOs, Bigfoot, whatever. I just like that that there's there's some good evidence and there's lots of bad evidence, but just the phenomenon has just always been interesting to me. And, and I don't know how I feel about most of that stuff. So if you ask me right now, I don't know on most of those things if I could give you a solid answer because I don't have enough evidence. But what bothers me the most is there are so many people out there who will on purpose do a hoax or they'll, you know, and now with, with the way that technology is, you can artificially show a UFO very easily. You can artificially show Bigfoot. And the more that we can do these things and we can't rely on images and video, you then throw everything into question and then how will you ever have evidence that you could prove for paranormal stuff and i feel like that analogy works almost in the courtroom where it's like once you've decided that you can't really trust anyone's memory at that point is anything anyone says is it true and just because it's fallible does that mean that they're not telling the truth well they could be but they also may not be what do you know what's truth, you know? And I think that, that that's what kind of like bothers me about the whole thing is you may never know the answer of without, you know, without other evidence. That, well, that's, 
That's true. And, and when, when you bring up the question of hoaxes, I mean, I've been thinking about the deep fakes and the, the doctored mm, right. photos, doctored right. videos, the fact that we can now ha have the technology where you can make it look like anybody is kind of saying or doing anything you want them to say <laughs> right, or do. Yeah. So we can't, get, we can't, we can't just say, is there video? Or, right, is right, there yeah, audio yeah, yeah. Anymore? You, right. you, you really have to investigate that it wasn't a, a hoax. Right. It's like our whole world could be faked around us. Like that's that's crazy that we live in that that era right now. We're we're there right now. <laughs> we're there. We are. It's crazy. I mean, because even what you're doing, you know, we're talking about. Well, the one thing we could do is video evidence. Now we can't trust that. What can we trust, Doctor Loftus? If anything. I don't well, know. I mean, we are, you know, people have asked me, do you want to just throw out all memory and not ever have it come into a court case? And, and I say no, because there's some hmm. cases where there's, there's not a, a lot of good reason not to trust the memory. It was things were perceived in broad daylight. You had a long time to look. There wasn't very much stress. It wasn't a cross race mm -hmm. uh, situation. It mm -hmm. was a very short passage of time. You, and, and, there, you just don't have a whole collection of problematic factors. Maybe you, you want to trust the memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and not only, you know, it's it's funny because not only in, it, when you, t now those are ideal situations that you just mentioned. Those are ideal conditions, you know, and, and maybe someone's right there. It's also, I, I think, you know, especially with the time distortion, there are lots of things that our brain does to kind of, um, you know, kind of edit our life so we don't, unless we have a photographic memory, right? Um, which actually I'm going to get to that in a second. But let's say that, you know, you're, you're driving to a place you've driven, driving to work, you've driven there a million times, right? Your brain can kind of shut out the drive unless something important happens, you know? And so that gets kind of, I don't know about a race, but it gets kind of glossed over, you know? Um, with other things, like if you get into an accident, you know, the, the all of a sudden your brain is taking more pictures of this brand new thing. You know, the drive is, is old, boring stuff. We don't need to copy that down again. But, you know, an accident is brand new and this is all you need to be knowing what's going on. And that's how time can feel kind of elongated. Our brain is like making these weird adjustments that we can't really, um, you know, we, we can't consciously stop or, or start. And so, you know, one of the interesting things is gun focus or weapon focus, I believe, where, where someone has a gun and you're focused on that item and all the, you know, it's like our peripheral vision, you know, it all goes away. And we, we know we know what the gun, we can maybe do the make and model of the gun, maybe what their hands look like. But, you know, subtle facial features are probably gone, colors. Um, that That's a pretty incredible phenomenon that you run across as well. Well, I, I wouldn't use the word gone, but definitely okay. when there's a weapon involved in a in a crime scene it does capture uh, a good deal of the witness's attention like their bandwidth essentially like that's what they're focused well, on well if you hook them up to an eye movement recording device while they're mm. watching a robbery you can actually see the eye movements focused in on the gun the eye fixations more of them on the, on the weapon than say a neutral item and the fixations last a little bit longer uh, so and it results in a reduced ability to identify the person holding the weapon hmm. and answer other kinds of questions because that it has captured attention. But it's not, it's not that it's completely gone, but just a reduced memory for those other details. That's the phenomenon, which is called weapon focus. Right. And I guess it could be to anything, right? I mean, you could, um, anything you're focused on, I mean, because essentially... 
you know, we only have a certain amount of bandwidth, a certain only certain amount of information we can take in, which is, you know, why, um, you know, I remember my, when I would drive as a kid um, and I'd be making noise or talking to my mom and she wanted to like take a left or was having difficulty like navigating an area. She wanted everyone to be quiet, turn off the radio because she wanted to like shut down the audio input so that she could focus on the visual input. And I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, you're the expert. Um, I think you only have 17 honorary degrees and 15 <laughs> earned degrees. Well, not quite. Come yeah. <laughs> close. Um, but, but, you know, I feel like we only have a certain amount of attention for everything. Um, and so, so what, what, you know, and especially when you're looking at something, you only see, you know, you only see the peripheral, you're only focusing on certain things. Um, how, is there any way, like a person with photographic memory, let's say, I wanted to get back to that. Do they visualize, have you done any work with them? Do they visualize things differently? Are they actually recording it like a video? You know, there's some people that can, that can recall, you know, a day and time from whenever in their childhood. Um, how do those people work? Well, I, 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 I don't know. The whole idea of photographic memory, I think, has been a little debunked. Has it? That, uh, well, the idea that you can, you know, sort of look at a page and somehow co completely reproduce the entire uh, page uh, that you've looked at, um, that, that was around a few decades ago, and, and it, it doesn't seem to have been a phenomenon that we can establish solidly. What, what, has, uh, what has been available lately mm. are a small number of people who have incredible um, autobiographical memories. They, they remember just about everything they did every day of their adult life. And there's a kid that I, that I saw a video on, and he's, you know, he's 12 years old, but he can, if you tell him a day, he, in a year, he tell you exactly what he did that day. Right, and they've been studied by my colleagues here at UC huh. Irvine. They're, they call them HSAMs, Highly Superior Autobiographical Memory Subjects. Um, and they're extraordinary. They've been, they've been featured on 60 Minutes a few times. Articles have been written about them. Um, and in collaboration with the research group that has been studying them, we actually put them through some of these false memory procedures, and they're just as susceptible hmm. to having their memory be contaminated as wow. regular people, even though they have this extraordinary uh, ability. Well, so so getting back to the point that I mentioned, do, do people like that? Do they have more bandwidth in their brain? Are they can they collect more and store more at a time? How is I don't know how it is that they uh, they do this. Huh. Uh, Does anyone know, or is it just an absolute? Well, I, you could ask my colleagues here at UCI who've been studying them huh. since about two thousand and five or so. Wow. They'll, and and they've done brain imaging on these individuals and so on. So. Yeah, learn a little bit more about them. Huh. I mean, because it, it just seems like, I mean, so let me ask you this. Someone like that who's been proven to have that, would you trust them in a courtroom? Or I mean, I know you mentioned they have the same the same fallacy, but but don't, aren't they a little more trustworthy or no? Well, about some facts, maybe. But, yeah. um, but I, I don't know about uh, if they saw an accident right. that, that they're they're not immune from having their their memory be distorted. Wow. So are you kind of like a Fox Moldery kind of like trust no one when it comes to that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah. I That's think okay. A healthy skepticism is called <laughs> for, especially when somebody's freedom is is at stake. Now, now, now I guess we we've kind of gone into this a little bit, but you've um, there's so is so, you know the false there's false memories are kind of like this. 
I mean, when I look at your work, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't mean to oversimplify, but eyewitness testimony is basically people kind of misremembering things. Is that kind of the misinformation effect that you've kind of been credited with, with this ability to like uh, take a couple of different things and maybe combine them into one or? No, mis the misinformation effect is just the, the phenomenon that if people have, see an event, have an experience, and you feed them some misleading information, okay. often they will pick up that misinformation, incorporate it into their memory, and it causes an alteration, transformation, a distortion in, in the prior memory. That, that, and they'll now report that they saw something different than what they actually saw. That's the misinformation effect. There are other reasons why people might uh, report something different that doesn't have anything to do with misinformation. They may they just may be guessing and they they guess wrong or or hmm. or have some other reason for making a mistake but the misinformation effect that's now in the in the psychology textbooks really refers to the exposure to misleading information and how it impairs um, memory now there's this one great story um, which kind of goes along with that and i believe that uh, i read this in your book um, but it's about hunters um, who kind of mistook one for something else. You, does this story sound familiar? Well, I think that might be from a book from decades ago. That I, it's possibly a case where, uh, yeah, you can see something ambiguous. You're a hunter. You're looking for a deer. You think it's a deer. And you shoot, and it ends up being a human being that you've just killed. Right. Uh, I mean, and that happens often. Well, it happens. And this... But what, what really is important about that is you've got to get into the mindset of the hunter who was expecting to see a deer, thought right. he saw a deer, it was ambiguous. If you try to recreate the scene like a month later and you send somebody out there who knows about the, about the tragedy, they may see that ambiguous thing and say, that doesn't look like a deer to me. <laughs> uh, right, but right, yeah. they, they have a different mindset. So you really have to... You, you, you know, you can't really reproduce the mindset of, of you have, well, you have to keep that in mind. That yeah. It's, that's not fair. Right. To the, to the poor hunter. Well, we do live in, in a time in a society where we rarely take on and rarely kind of see other people's points of view um, on anything, much less, you know, once we see things, you know, I think then that's kind of the problem with the system is like once you see things, once you've been convinced one way, um, you know, there's this kind of belief that it's, it's weak to be pulled off of and be convinced otherwise, um, which is very strange, actually, you know, especially when it comes to things like murder. Um, and in this in this movie, 12 Angry Men, like that's kind of one of the one of the jurors is just hanging on to this thing because he feels like if he were to switch his vote now, he's all of a sudden weak and has completely forgotten that there's, uh, you know, a man's life on the line. And, and I think, you know, people can forget the stakes that are involved with these types of things. And as you mentioned, it's very helpful to look at their point of view because um, it's very easy, like you said, to make that mistake in particular. Um, now, one of the things, uh, one of the thing I want to mention, which I, I found to be kind of interesting, is the type of people that make bad eyewitnesses. And neurotic people make bad eyewitnesses. Um, why is that? Uh, and I think that that would, I think I would fall into that category. Uh, I, that was, I think that was one study that uh, decades and decades ago uh, where your score on uh, a, a neuroticism scale was somehow correlated. I would not make a big deal out of that. Really? Yeah, it just hasn't, I mean, I haven't seen replications of it and I, I'm not sure the, uh, 
you know, effect was that, well, it was statistically significant was all that huge. Now, what about, because you make, you do do a lot of stuff about um, people in stressful situations that affects people's memory. If you're neurotic, wouldn't every situation be stressful and therefore almost every situation kind of subjects you to the stress effect? Well, again, that was one small study from decades ago. I think if you're going to really make some declarations about neuroticism, we need to see more work. Okay. So you're not going to go on record I'm as saying... Gonna, yeah, I'm not going to... I made just a brilliant point there. That was a brilliant connection that I just made. Yeah. You're just tossing it aside as if well, it's... I, well, I hate to do that to you, but... Uh, do you hate to do that to me? But, but I, 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 I think you need to talk to a clinical psychologist, somebody who treats mental health uh, problems, and say, are neurotic people always under stress? And what yeah. does that do to them and do to their life? Sure. Okay. It's a little outside my expertise. <laughs> All right. I, w I won't hold you to it. So, uh, so hang on to your theory there. I, I am. Well, it's, it's, it's public record now. So if anything comes out, um, I can only assume that I've influenced that particular scientist to, to explore this area of study, um, although I don't want to be the subject there. Um, now, now, what about children? Uh, how did children kind of fall into this category? Uh, are they... Are they better, worse at any of these things? Um, you Mostly know. young children, and, and again, they're, they're world's experts on this that are other scientists, some of whom I've had the honor of collaborating with. But, um, but you know, they find, for example, three to six-year-olds are even more susceptible to contamination. Hmm. Uh, in, in one study... Um, a suggestion that you got your hand caught in a mouse trap and had to go to a hospital to get it removed. You get these young kids, five and six years old, telling you all about the mouse trap and the trip to the hmm. hospital uh, through the suggestive questioning process. So we do have to keep in mind that, well, you know, young kids can be accurate about a lot of things. And, and, and there are some rare situations where they can even be a little more accurate than adults when mm. it's something they're really interested in, like dinosaurs or right. something. Um, but mostly they're potentially more susceptible to contamination, and, and that's a worry. Yeah, well, I mean, especially because we believe children, you know, we um, there's this belief that, that they're pure and they, wouldn't, they don't have any reason to lie and that if something happened that must, you know what they said must be true. And, and uh, you know, I think there's like this, this weird belief in s something similar to that, right? Well, uh, you know, except for the fact that people who, who want to believe that are, are the very same people who are raising kids and have seen them, you know, lie left <laughs> and right. So. Right, right. Yeah. No, we, we're, we are great at being hypocrites. Um, so I, we didn't get into false memory stuff. I got a bunch of stuff. Do you have 10 minutes to stick around for an extra episode on, on false memories? Okay, sure. Okay. Because um, this is this is incredible stuff, um, but but you know, I just I want to applaud your work in eyewitness testimony because I mean it is it's changed everything. Um, I mean it's definitely turned it on its head, and I don't think there's any real answer on how we can make this um, an infallible system. But at least understanding the pitfalls um, makes it at least a better system, in my opinion. So thank you very much for that. I want to thank on behalf of the American people and on humanity uh, as a whole. I want to thank you for all your work oh, in that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn.
The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to learn more about this episode and all of my past episodes. I got them all up there. Uh, You can go to the top of the page, find links to the previous episodes, uh, the entire format. You can even check out the guests, what they're about, and you can even follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And of course, you can subscribe to the show, which I highly recommend. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn. Links are there as well. And finally, there's a newsletter. If you want to hear about upcoming episodes, get behind-the-scenes insights, check it out, the newsletter, bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And if you like this show, you're going to like my latest podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, which is FGGBT.com. That's FGGBT.com. I sit down with a physicist and a rocket scientist, and we talk about pop culture technology like the Spider-Verse, multiverses. Are they possible? Uh, we talk about Luke Cage's skin. Bulletproof skin is something everybody wants. How amazing would that be? Uh, things like that. We've talked about the T-1000. Uh, we're going to get into uh, the Neuralizer from Men in Black. Can you erase memories? Which is a great thing to get into given what we just talked about. FGGBT.com. And if you like do those two shows, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission. Thank you.